HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer, broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today on the phone is the author Michael Moss. Moss uh, is is his uh, book, Sugar, Salt, and Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, has been a bestseller for weeks. He's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of, uh, er, uh, sorry, I'm a little like freaked out because we had phone problems anyway, but Michael has served as an investigative reporter for the New York Times since 2000, and we can expect to see another big story from Michael uh, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. I think it's next week, but we'll talk about that in a minute. He's also written for the Wall Street Journal, Newsday, and the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Uh, he, re- he earned his Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for reporting on the dangers of contaminated meat and helped to popularize the term pink slime. By the way, are you getting sued for that also, Michael? Also? What do you mean also? Oh, well, no, I mean, ABC got into big trouble for using that term pink slime as a pejorative. Is, you know, that is true. But when I wrote about it, it was, and I was the first person to sort of quote from that memo right. from the USDA official who used the word. And, you know, I have to say, I was writing it in, the, you know, in a different context. I was looking at a pathogen contamination of meat. Mm-hmm. And I didn't sort of flog that, you know, the term pink slime, even though I wrote about it in the piece, it wasn't the centerpiece of the thing. And, right. and, you know, and I think that sort of things changed when sort of other media sort of got onto it and some things started happening to it that really hurt the companies. It thing. really hurt. I mean, BPI shut down. 
Well, it didn't shut down, and, and actually, they may be making something of a comeback, actually. Well, um, I've seen that school programs have opted in to buy that again because of the really, constraints and food budgets. Absolutely, a yes. really tough thing. I, I spent some time with Ann Cooper recently, the renegade lunch lady. Yes, she's been a guest here, too. Who has moved from Berkeley to Boulder, and she's just beside herself at how little money public school systems have to feed their kids. Something like in the order of a dollar per kid per yeah. day, which makes it so difficult to shift the menu. And that's the pressure that the schools are under that led them to continue to want to use pink slime. Sure. Can't blame them for that. Um, now, you have uh, another story coming up. Uh, in It's the New York Times Sunday Magazine cover next week, right? It is. And it will be online as soon as Wednesday. And I'm very excited about it. Do you want to just share the title with us? I wouldn't share the title. Um, actually, I'm not even sure what the exact headline <laughs> on the cover of the magazine is. But, but the conceit was this. I wanted to know that since every health study says we should be eating more fruits and vegetables, in fact, twice as much fruits and vegetables as we are now, I wanted to know just how could anybody help us get to that point. Right. And so instead of going to the government... Or instead of going to public health advocates, I decided to go to the junk food industry and ask them, what would you do if you suddenly had to start selling fresh fruits and vegetables without coating it with like fried cheese sauce or (laughs) caramel coating? How would you apply your genius? And this piece, both in print and this video, is the answer to that. And I have to say... It's really pretty stunning. I cannot wait to read it, and I'm sure that everybody who is listening now and in the future will be rushing right out to either buy (laughs) the Times next week or look at it online. Um, But let's, I mean, obviously that story sprang from the research and the connections that you made when you were writing Sugar, Salt, and Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, which I have to tell you is one of the best books I've ever read about the food industry. I've just, I mean, you're a wonderful writer, Michael. And I just, it's such a page turner. It is so um, even handed. It is delivered in such a lovely, dispassionate, but sometimes humorous way. Mm. Um, Dare I say there's quite a bit, I mean, for me anyway, I was laughing out loud at some things. Mm. I'm not sure they were deliberately funny, but they were to me anyway. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but um, give us a sense of how we got to where we are, where the the junk food industry, which is pretty much what you're you know targeting here, you know commands this enormous part of the American food dollar. How did we get there? And you know, can you give us a little bit of a history, a short history on how these convenient foods really took off? Well, I mean, you could go all the way back to the turn of the century, where you know, the physician Harvey Kellogg, right, of right. Kellogg's fame, he actually hated sugar. He had a sanatorium up in Battle Creek, Michigan, where he was, where he would not even give people, you know, a little tiny bit of sugar in, in his sort of program up there to make people healthier. His younger brother, Will, though, had other ideas, and when Harvey <laughs> Kellogg came up with making a cereal he eventually put Will in charge of it, and when Harvey was off on some trip, Will decided to add some sugar to right. a non-sugar cereal. And the patients went crazy, sales skyrocketed, the two brothers went to court, and eventually Will ran, ran, uh, won, and that, you know, that was the beginning of cold cereal, as we know. But 
I like to actually also think about this moment in the 1980s when almost overnight it became socially acceptable to eat anything, anywhere, anytime. And that right. was when you started seeing people eating and drinking walk down the street. And that played right into the hands of the snack food industry. They started creating more and more snackable, handheld products that led to mindless eating. Uh-huh. And so while over the years, while the content of salt, sugar, fat may not have changed in many of the more important products like soda, for example, you started to see sort of more and more snackable products replace meals and our dependency increased on them. And I think that was a big, that was a big factor. What was it about the 1980s uh, that makes you feel like that was sort of the tipping point in terms of, of going from, you know, eating meals, sitting down at a table to eating meals on the go? I think, you know, a lot of it was sort of on economic pressure on families. Really? You started having sort of both, more both parents working mm-hmm. outside of the home. You started to have the situation where just having one job wasn't enough. You needed two. You had, you know, the situation where people had to stay at their desks and eat or snack or get to work early for business meetings or mm-hmm. stay late. And I think that, in, you know, in large part is what helped send kind of the family meal into a spiral. We got just so much busier in our lives and we were felt that we could pay less attention to food. And that has been uh, primarily an American phenomenon because, I mean, in France or, you know, really even the rest of Western Europe, <clears throat> and I won't pretend to any knowledge of other countries, that that emphasis on working long hours, on being available on weekends, on all of the stuff that has ch- happened to erode family meal hasn't really happened as much, ah, although I think it, it is. It is changing. Well, I you showed talk. in your book, like, Oreos going to India. I mean, that yeah. just blew my mind. <laughs> With India, refrigerators. Developing, yes, developing countries. Brazil is now yeah. a Wild West frontier for the American-style processed food companies who are going in there and trying to convert people from scratch cooking to prepared foods. But I was just going to mention that I gave a talk in Vienna recently and the health ministers from all the European countries were there with incredibly grim expressions on their face because mm-hmm. American-style foods are now marching throughout Europe right. in bastions of great eating like France and Italy, and they are scared to death at the impact it's having on their health budgets because obesity, diabetes are on the rise. Well, as you point out again, and I think other people have probably read in the newspapers, Mexico, for instance, is is topping out on the obesity epidemic largely due to their pleasure in drinking sodas. Yes. And, you know, the whole soda thing. I mean, let's let's backtrack just a little bit, though, before we get into that, because I've already gone way off my outline. Um I want to talk about the science of food engineering because that is a big part of why these convenience foods are so successful. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how they study the bliss point, determining, uh, you know, what quantities of sugar, fat, or salt make something almost irresistible. Yeah, I'll walk you through sort of one example. I was lucky to spend time with a a legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz, He's trained in high math at Queens College and then experimental psychology at Harvard. He's responsible for many of the biggest icons in the grocery store. And mm-hmm. He walked me through his recent creation of a new soda for Dr. Pepper. Right. And to get to the perfect amount of sweetness that would send us over the moon and the product flying off the shelf, he started with no less than 61 
different formulations of sweetness, each one just slightly different than the other, subjected those to 3,000 taste tests around the country, took the data, threw it in his computer, and did his high math regression analysis thing, and out came these graphs that look like bell-shaped curves, mm -hmm. the kind that kids get graded on in school, except at the very top of the curve is not the, is not the dreaded middle C, <laughs> but what he helped, what he coined the term for, the bliss point, the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little, not too much, because our liking of sweetness isn't infinite. Mm -hmm. And 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 what's really important to sort of nutritionists is not that they've perfected the bliss point for soda. It's that people like Howard, working for all the big companies, have marched around the store engineering bliss points for foods that didn't used to be uh, sweet before. So now bread has sugar in it and an engineered bliss point. Right. Low-fat yogurt can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. One of my favorites to marvel at are some of the prepared pasta sauces, which can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in a tiny half. Right. That was or... just what I was going to say is like pasta sauce. When you look at the ingredient list for ragu or prego, there is an extraordinary amount of sugar and salt, but and like a this... shocking amount of sugar considering that it's supposed to be kind of a tart taste. Right. And what this does in the words of scientists who work with the food industry is to create expectations especially in children, mm. that everything they eat should taste good. So when you drag their little bodies over to the produce aisle <laughs> and try to talk them into eating broccoli and they hit one of those bitter notes, it's all over. Right. And children are from one of the things you point out in the, in the, the book, I should remind people, it's divided into three sections, sugar, fat, and salt. Um, and, uh, and the fact is, is that we are hardwired to like sugar. From every, the get -go, one right? of our, every one of our 10,000 taste buds is equipped and ready for the sweet taste to hit it, sends an electric signal to the pleasure center of the brain mm -hmm. that basically says, hey, love that, eat more. But kids are especially susceptible to it because they see sugar as instant calories for growth. It's very deceptive to Interesting. Their brain. Very interesting. And of course, they obviously can't be <laughs> relied upon to discern that, that kind of, the kind of growth they might get is not necessarily the one they want, as no, in their bones not. or their brain. It's more yep. like their avoir du poids. Of course. <laughs> Very difficult. So, so it's really a neurochemical issue. I mean, what these guys are doing is studying neurochemistry and determining where uh, these bliss points, whether it's for sugar, for salt, or for fat, yeah. uh, arrive, and that, and then they formulate a product to meet those specifications. It really doesn't, yeah. have, it doesn't seem know, like it has a lot of much, much to do with taste, for example. Absolutely. Taste, texture. I mean, we can talk about potato chips. Yeah. I love Route 11, by the way. Uh, it's yeah, our right? favorite <laughs> in this house. But, um, but the potato chip is probably one of the most perfectly engineered snack foods. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts with the salt on the surface, right. which provides what the industry calls flavor burst. Then, then it goes to the, which again sort of sends a signal to the brain, love that, eat more, Michael. And they're loaded with, with <laughs> fat, of course, which isn't a taste, it's a feeling that's right. picked up by the trigeminal nerve. But that also sends signals to the pleasure center of the brain. What I didn't know, though, is that chips are loaded with sugar, not added, but in the form of the simple potato starch, sure. which gets converted to glucose starting the instant it hits your tongue. So it's got the holy trinity yeah. all in that one product. 
on top of which it has things like perfect amounts of noise and crunch and the packaging right. is great. We did a little video by the top for the Times recently looking at Doritos and how that is an even more perfectly engineered snack. Oh, I'll uh, say. Oh, please give me a Dorito. And I, I need I need it in the in its most pure and basic form. Like I don't I don't go for the other <laughs> Yeah, you know and it's funny. I mean, like of... I've never been a snack eater, and I didn't let my kid grow up that way. But when we took the train together, which we did a lot when we were little, when she was little, she would be allowed to have a bag of Doritos. Which, by the way, thir- two hundred and thirty calories last time I looked for a like what is it, two ounce serving or something. It was just yeah, stunning. yeah. It's um, it's yeah, it's you know the industry calls sort of much of the appeal, the allure that they work into those, the mm-hmm. psychobiology of engineering foods. Yeah, it's just astonishing. One of the other things that struck me over and over again as I was reading through the book is fun. The way that these companies use the concept of fun in their marketing of these foods. Sure. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about, like, like in every sort of internal memo or, or you know, industry expert that you quoted, it was all about the fun of eating these foods. And, and one of the perfect examples is the Lunchables, yeah. that TV dinner type tray, which was was created by the marketing people at Oscar Mayer to solve a problem, which is that people were eating less meat out of concern for sodium and um, saturated fat, which is the fat that's that's mostly linked to to um, heart disease. Right. And their answer was to come up with the Lunchables product. And very early on in that project, people at Kraft, who merged with Oscar Mayer, realized and said in these internal documents that I got a hold of that to them the Lunchables wasn't about food. It was about empowerment to kids and the fun that it relayed. And thus they came up with that slogan, all day you got to do what they say, but lunchtime is all yours. Mm -hmm. Um, And started creating these products that were, you know, cold entrees and snacks. Yeah, like pizza. Yes, they made (laughs) pizza Lunchables and hot dog, uh, hamburger, taco, pancake Lunchables, all to be eaten cold by the kids and lunchmen. The mothers who were surveyed about it before they did said, there's no way my kid would would eat something like that, but they did Mm -hmm. because it empowered them and the marketing people being geniuses in the snack food industry figured that out and ran with it. Amazing. We're going to take a quick break right now, Michael, so we can do a sponsor drop, but uh, please stay tuned for more with Michael Moss, author of Sugar, Salt, and Fat, and How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Stay tuned, folks. Thanks, Michael. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. And we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You. 
Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is Michael Moss, uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalist whose book, Sugar, Salt, and Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, was have been many weeks on the bestseller list, and he's here today to tell us a little bit more about it. Um, Michael, um, there was I really could spend like two hours talking about this book, and maybe you can come back another time and we can do more, but there were two things that really struck me, because, I mean, I think we all know that we eat too much, there's too much cheese, there's this and that, but given that we're running out of time here, there were two things that really hit me hard. Synergy in marketing. When Kraft and General Foods merged with Philip Morris, or when Philip Morris bought those entities out, they started using demographics from the tobacco industry to target the fast food industry or the snack food industry. Yeah. Um, so can you talk, can you sort of unpack that a little bit about how they worked that? Cause it was really about people who were, they call them not addicts, but they call them heavy users, which I thought yeah, was fascinating. We're conflating a couple of things or heavy users was a term that Coca-Cola actually coined oh, sorry. Okay. to describe their best customers, people who would eat, you know, drink rather three cans of Coke or mm-hmm. more a year. Um, and Coke actually was the master at, at demographic targeting they went and continued to go after kids, especially through convenience stores, knowing that when kids walk in with a little of their own spending money yeah. and decide what brand to buy, they will be brand loyal for the rest of their lives. And so they Ooh. practice this thing called up and down the street marketing, which right. basically describes their trucks that go from convenience store to convenience store, along with the other snack food companies. The The role of big tobacco in big food was absolutely surprising to me because mm-hmm. the largest food co- tobacco company of all philip morris became the largest food company in the 80s when it bought this old company called general foods and then Kraft. Right. and indeed for the first two decades you can see through the internal documents that i have and the interviews the tobacco executives pushing, cajoling, you know, encouraging their food division people to do everything and the increased sales, and lending to them some of their marketing schemes. Really, the biggest ones that I saw was the placement of foods in convenience stores and the dealings that they yeah. have with convenience stores, because the tobacco people were really, really good at that and understanding how important that was. Just quickly, though, there's a very surprising turn, though, because when Philip Morris became the first tobacco company to embrace government regulation, and they did it for their own reasons, mind sure. you, <laughs> they turned to their food people and said to them privately, you guys are going to have as much trouble over salt, sugar, fat, obesity as we are now. Right. With nicotine, you're going to have to do something to lessen your dependence on that holy trinity, which right. was an amazing moment. And again, the thing about the book was, yes, we always knew that eating too much of this food, I like to say the food we hate to love can make us sick. But now we know that the companies have been acutely aware of this for years and years and years, even as they continued adding in heaps of salt sugar fat. Absolutely. Well, actually, I mean, to that end, I'm I'm going to be giving a talk in Kansas City at the National Institute of uh, Animal Agriculture uh-huh. about antibiotics in the food chain. And I pulled out a quote that from your book that was a Philip Morris executive talking to uh, the General Foods team when they first started gearing up. And he said, pay close attention to public concerns and most importantly, address them. Denial is not enough. Think about solutions. And that speaks exactly to what you were saying, which was that they were aware 
that this obesity crisis, which was only just kind of getting lift off in the 80s and, you know, ballooned as we now have it, um, they were like right there thinking you're going to have to make some kind of uh, concession to this. And interestingly enough, you have a whole section on craft foods and how they brought in a panel, including a woman named Ellen Wartella, where they tried to self-regulate where the FDA and the USDA would not. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that uh, initiative that they had and whether or not it was a success story in terms of actually being able to back out some of these additives and secondly, whether or not it was a, shall we say, bona fide effort. Was it successful or was it really ultimately a PR ploy? Because it's a very complex Sure. interesting uh, part of the book. Yeah, within Kraft was a cabal of insiders who really truly cared about nutrition and health and the public. They, in fact, tried to convince the entire industry to go along with an anti-obesity initiative. Mm-hmm. They pulled together the CEOs, and I write about this meeting at the start of the book, pulled together the CEOs of the largest companies and tried to convince them, and the CEOs said no. And so Kraft right. went out on its own. To, and they, in fact, they did do some rather extraordinary things, which is so empowering to you as a consumer when you kind of think about it, because it's they're acknowledging that they weren't doing things right by people. Mm-hmm. One, they looked at their marketing to kids and decided they were being overly aggressive on the worst health products as so they cut back right. on that marketing. They looked at the labels of the products, especially packages of snacks that had two or three or four servings. Because their data showed that many of us will eat the whole bag, and yet they were only disclosing the nutrient loads per serving, and they felt that was being less than forthright with people. So they started doing the math, and they would put the total number of calories and sugar and salt in the whole package, and that was revolutionary. They did it on their own without government forcing them to. And then the third thing, they turned to their food scientists and said, thou shalt no longer keep adding as much salt to your side as you simply want to, to maximize the allure. So they which put was caps. an incredible moment, because incredible. up until then, that's all they had done. And right. yes, it worked until their competitors realized they were trying to go easy. Big fight broke out in the cookie aisle. Yep. New companies came in with brands that were richer, bigger, sweeter. Craft mm-hmm. Felt, which owned Nabisco and Oreo, felt it needed to do something to stay alive, and they started coming out with the double stuff and the triple stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the marketing overseas as well that you that you mentioned. So it seemed to be working. Um, they one exception to it, of course, was cheese, which is a big part of the craft portfolio. Sure. You know, nobody can make a low-fat cheese now that tastes, you know, anywhere near like the real thing. Sure. So, but it seemed to be working. But it pointed to this issue, which is this industry is so fiercely competitive that if there is going to be some solution from within, it has to be collective or they will eat each other alive. Exactly. Well, that was the takeaway I took from that. And uh, I thought that was just a fascinating example of where Wall Street, ultimately, it's Wall Street that's calling the shots because these guys, these executives are beholden to their shareholders. And they have to show an ever-increasing profit margin. And as you say, when, you know, somebody tries to take an initiative that might be for, you know, the public good, 
in the end, they're, they fail because the competition doesn't necessarily have the same imperatives, thanks yep. to the Wall Street involvement. Yep. And so that brings me to another, uh, and I guess my final question, because we'll have to wrap it up in a few minutes. But there was a very interesting um, section in the book, uh, particularly about fat, um, about the USDA tie-in to selling meat and dairy, right. as opposed to, I mean, there are other commodity products that they deal with, but... And so the the beef checkoff, which is mm. duplicated in the pork industry and the poultry industry, um, was developed. And this is where, um, for those of you who are not meat geeks like me, this is where every single producer has to give a certain percentage of their you know dollar to uh, basically a marketing program, which is essentially um, overseen by the USDA and the Secretary of Agriculture, mm-hmm. which I found astonishing. And I wanted you to, to uh, you know, sort of take us through a little bit of that. And then also there was a Supreme Court decision, which came up, I'm thinking about, against Creekstone Farms, mm-hmm. uh, beef producers, but you didn't name the company. Mm-hmm. But it was a, Creekstone was a company that tried to differentiate itself from the, right, yeah. sort of the, you know, the Cargills and Tysons of the world. Right. And, um, and they were, that, that decision went against them mm-hmm. um, because they were trying to market themselves as a healthier alternative to mass-produced beef. So talk a little bit about the USDA involvement in, in the marketing of beef, of, ca- of meat and dairy, and mm-hmm. how there's kind of a basic um, contradiction there. Yeah, well, we kind of have Ronald Reagan to thank for it, actually. So oh, oh, basically it was this, <laughs> you know, the, and it started with dairy. They started making so much cheese because people were drinking less whole milk mm-hmm. in order to save calories and fat. Um, to make low-fat milk, you had to extract milk fat, and they started using that to make more butter and ice cream and cheese and so much. They were making so much cheese, and the government was buying so much and storing it that when, yeah. when Reagan came in, he said, look, enough of this. We're going to stop buying the surplus cheese. It's just going moldy. But we're not going to abandon the dairy industry. So they created this thing called the check-off in mm-hmm. which the big dairy and livestock industries were allowed to tax themselves to raise money for marketing. Last time I checked, collectively, they were raising some $250 million a year Mm -hmm. in order to solve their problem, which in their eyes, solving the problem is to get us to eat more. And so they began marketing cheese as an additive, for example, and they began finding ways to make beef more convenient to eat as Mm -hmm. a snack, for example. And that gives them incredible power to affect our diet so that, and again, you have, and what Congress did was they, they set up the Secretary of Agriculture to oversee that program. So on one hand, you have the Department of Agriculture telling all of us we should cut back on fatty cheeses and fatty meats. But on the other hand, when you look at the money, it's all going to encouraging us to be eating more of those yes. products. And yes, this, you know, a case went to the Supreme Court where somebody tried to challenge it, one of the, one of the producers who were being taxed, on the notion, it was sort of a, you know, it was a, it was a, a tangential argument that their products weren't being, you know, really benefited from by this mm. marketing campaign. And it was none other than Justice Ginsburg who sort of look, said, okay, you know, I'll go along with this, but hey, wait a minute, this is horribly ironic, isn't it, that on one <laughs> hand the government is, you know, is encouraging, rather discouraging the consumption of these products. On the other hand, it's, you know, it's it's, it's basically this, writing this, their, their copy. drives consumption. Yeah. And by the way, our consumption of cheese has tripled since the 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, what is it, 33 pounds a year now? 
per person per, per year. Per person per year. That's astonishing. And yet the price of milk plummeted and dairy farmers around the country, I know this, have have folded. And so now it's really just very large corporate dairies that are succeeding. There has been a shift and they've been doing everything to increase production and productivity of their yeah. cows through hormones and feeding and all of mm-hmm. that. So the system is a bit out of whack. A bit, just a bit. Well, <laughs> Michael, sadly, we have to call it a day here. I do hope you'll come back um, and Absolutely. talk again about this and about your new article. Um, I'd lo- I can't wait to read it, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, why don't we let people know where uh, they can learn more about Michael Moss? Um, and of course your book is obviously available anywhere and everywhere. And sure. I strongly urge anyone who's interested in the food system that we have now to read it. Cause it explains an awful lot of, even to somebody like me that spent a lot yeah, of time right. studying up on this. Um, I have a website, michaelmossbooks.com. That's where you can find salt, sugar, fat, and some of the more recent articles that I've done. The mm-hmm. cover story of the Times Magazine will have a picture of broccoli on it, so you won't be able to, <laughs> you, won't, you, won't, you won't miss it. Okay, very good. And thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It was a real pleasure. I knew you'd be a great interview, and you certainly didn't disappoint. And uh, love the book, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Thanks so Likewise. much. Thanks. And thank you to my uh, sponsor today, Route 11, and thanks to my engineer, Joe, for soldiering through all the problems we had this morning. Um, see you next week, folks, with another great show. We'll be talking to Marion Nessel, actually, next week, so do tune into that. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.